There are a lot of things that amaze me. I see, for example, a violinist playing in a professional symphony, and, and I'm amazed. I, I watch a, a professional basketball player and see how they handle the, the ball, and I'm amazed. I, I watch people do things like mental math, where they take large numbers and they just add them up in their heads. Again, I'm amazed. It, maybe I'm easily amazed, I don't know, but when I see people doing things that I have absolutely no capability of doing, I'm amazed. Well, this morning, I wanted to see some things that should amaze us, things about our God. I mentioned last week that I was going to set aside our, our series on the Song of Solomon for the holiday season beginning this week. And what I decided to do for the remaining three weeks of the year is to take us through a short series that deals with Matthew's account of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As I set up this three-week series, I decided that I would begin with 17 verses in Matthew's gospel that usually we skip over. By now, if you have your Bibles open, you may have looked down and you know that these verses contain a bunch of names, or if you recognize this passage from your yearly reading plan, you, you know that these verses contain the, the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ. Now, now, don't walk out because you know it's just a list of names. I, I hope you stay here. It, it's really to our detriment that, that we skip these verses so much. They, they have a lot to teach us. Uh, but we oftentimes just skip over them so we can get to the Christmas story. I look back in my records, and over the years I've been here, next week I plan to preach from verses 18 through 25, and when I looked at my records, I've actually used those three other times for Christmas messages while I've been here. By, by contrast, I've never preached a sermon before today on these 17 verses, so I'm equally guilty of skipping over these verses. This morning, what I want to do is pull out seven observations that, that we can find in these verses that they'll show us something about our God. Verses that, uh, that are observations, rather, that, that teach us something about God. By, by no means will this be comprehensive. We could observe many more things, but I think seven will suffice for the morning. These are things that, that we see about God. The, these are, are things that, that really should amaze us about God. My, my goal is that as we walk away today, we will walk away understanding one core idea. Our amazing God reveals himself for a purpose. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. God doesn't reveal himself simply to appease our, our, our intellectual curiosity. Yes, we want to know more about God. We should want to know more about God. But he doesn't reveal himself so that we just can accumulate increasing knowledge about him. He reveals himself so that we will act upon his revelation. And the act that God reveals himself for us over all other acts that he moves us to, to do is worship. We as creatures are to worship our creator. That is our ultimate purpose. So our amazing God, he reveals himself so that we will worship him. That, that's true of every aspect of God's revelation. The, the created world around us reveals God, and, and that should move us to worship him. Every written word of scripture that, that he's given to us should move us to worship him. We, we should find ourselves continually amazed 
by our God. And that amazement should learn, lead us to, to worship. Like I said, we're going to make some observations from, from part of God's revelation that, that frequently skipped over. For the last four weeks, we've been looking at the Song of Solomon, a part of God's revelation that frequently is skipped over. Well, this time of year, we frequently skip over these verses in our rush to get to the Christmas story. But I want to make some observations. So let's begin. The, uh, the, the first observation that I want us to make from our verses is that in these verses, we see God's providence. We see God's providence in the book of beginnings. Now, I trust by now you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 1. The, the first words that, that we have in the New American Standard translation reads, the, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That, that really is a rather loose translation of what Matthew writes. Normally, the New American Standard is quite tight. Well, in this case, it's kind of a loose translation because Matthew really gives us more of a heading in the original Greek. He, what he writes reads, the book of beginnings of Jesus Christ. I have a copy here of a book of my beginnings. You can see it's a pretty good book. I show up on page 173 of this book. A cousin of my father spent, I have no idea, probably years of her life compiling our family history back to the 1700s. And I'll admit, my, my brother and my father, they've spent a lot more time looking at this book than I have. They, their interest in our family history exceeds mine, so usually I, I take the cop out, and if I want to know something about our family, I ask them rather than actually open up the book. I had to look yesterday to see where I showed up, and that's why I know it's 173. But we know something about where our family came from. Essentially, that's what Matthew is giving us here. He's tracing the record of where Jesus came from much further back. As I said, this book goes to the 1700s. It goes back 300 years. Well, Matthew here is tracing the record back much farther than that. He is tracing his records back to show that the Messiah, the one who's focusing on, he's tracing his record to show that the Messiah has both a royal lineage and a direct connection to the great patriarch of Israel. Let's take a couple minutes and read through our verses. Matthew writes, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boab was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And he has the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amon. 
and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was the father of Ebihud, Ebihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok was the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the most striking thing that, that... we should have noticed as I was reading those verses is that essentially I kept repeating a formula. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so. That hit us over and over. And we can be thankful that, that Matthew actually is selective here in, in his generations they recorded because if he included every generation between Abraham and, and Jesus, I would be reading for much, much longer than I just read it would be much greater than the 173 pages that it took to get my genealogy through 300 years. Matthew is selective. The, the, in, in, the term they use, the one that we have translated here that says father of, it, it really means that descended from rather than specifically that the first name is the direct parent. This is the line of. He, he's in the line of. And Matthew arranges things so that, as he indicates in that last verse, we have essentially three groups of 14. And he uses these three groups of 14 traced from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. Now, what I want to think about for a moment is how normal all of this is. The, the reason I pulled out this book to talk about my family is this is normal. We, we understand it. My, my, my book is essentially structured around this same pattern. So-and-so were the parents of so-and-so. And then that person married so-and-so and they were the parents of so-and-so. It's normal. Sure, not everyone has a, a family where there's someone interested enough to generate a book. But it's not unusual. And on my mother's side, my dad now has the book that traces her side of the family back to, to one of the, the ships of the, the Mayflower, or the Pilgrims, rather, one of their ships. Grace, on her side, has, has some records, a book that traces some of her mother's side of the family. It's, it's normal, not unusual at all for us to recognize there's these normal generations, these genealogies. We all came from generations before us. Well, in many ways, Jesus is similar. Joseph, as well as Mary, they had an extensive family history that could be traced. God used the, the normal process of, of beginning generations. One generation begat the next to, to place Jesus into a family tree that is traceable back to both David and Abraham. Providence is, is the work of God overseeing the, the normal course of events for the purpose of accomplishing his plan. That's what we have going on here. The providential work of God that ensured that Jesus would have a royal heritage 
as well as clear identification to the patriarch, Abraham himself. God used the normal process of, uh, of generations to achieve that. And we should be amazed. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. We should worship because we see God's providence. I mentioned Abraham. As we think about Abraham, we, we see a second thing. We, we see the faithfulness of God. We see God's faithfulness. In Genesis 12, 3, we went through Genesis, the early chapters of Abraham, several years back now. And in Genesis 12, 3, right after God promised Abraham that he would make Abraham a great nation, God also promised that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Further Old Testament revelation over the centuries between Abraham and Jesus, they, they revealed that there would be one referred to as the Messiah, the, the Christ in New Testament terms. The, this, the New Testament phrase is Christ for Messiah. That person would be the focal point for the, this promise of worldwide blessings. It's not an accident that, that Matthew begins the record of Jesus' ancestors with Abraham. Matthew wants to demonstrate that, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's part of Matthew's overall goal in his book, is to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And to start the demonstration, he goes back to Abraham to show that not only is Jesus the Messiah, he is the Messiah who will serve to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham almost two millennia earlier. As we read these first two verses, we should find ourselves struck with the faithfulness of God. Despite hundreds of years passing, God has not forgot the promises he made to Abraham. Instead, for hundreds of years, God ensured that the line of Abraham would remain traceable. And God ensured that, that Jesus would have a connection to that line. To me, that's stunning. The, the reason this book only goes back 300 years is because by the time my father's cousin got to the 1700s, she basically was running off records. The, the records in the 1700s were very sparse. Well, well, the line from Joseph to Abraham, it, it's traceable for somewhere around 1800 years. Six times the, the record of my family history. That, that's in, despite the fact that the nation was conquered during that time and exiled. That is even though the capital was destroyed at that point in time. And we know our Old Testament history, there were countless wars with all the upheaval that war brings during those 1800 years beyond the exile. And despite all the odds against it, God ensured that the line of Abraham was traceable so that we can see his faithfulness to his promises. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. We should worship God because we see God's faithfulness. Another thing that is quite striking about the record that we have here in these verses is the simple fact that there are women in the verses. In, in verses 3 through 5, and, and from these women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, we see God's kindness. God's kindness. It's unusual to find women 
listed in genealogical records of, of this time frame. And yet, here they are. And each of these women demonstrate God's kindness in unique ways. We don't have time this morning to, to go into their stories in detail. I, I hope you're familiar with them. If not, I, I will mention the Old Testament chapters where you can find the details of each of these women. And if you're not familiar, I'd encourage you this afternoon to go home and read the, the back story that, that goes behind the, these three women. Tamar, she's the first woman that's lifted in verse 3. She's lifted as the mother of the twin sons that she bore to Judah. What we should remember is that Judah was Tamar's father-in-law, not her husband. These sons, they're born illegitimately to, to Tamar. They're, they're born when she poses as a prostitute and entices her father-in-law. The, the rather sordid story that gives the details of that can be found in, in Genesis 38. Yet it's through Perez, rather than one of the other legitimate sons of Judah, that, that we trace the lineage of Jesus. Here we see God's kindness to a bereft woman. Rahab is the next woman, included in verse 5. Rahab is the prostitute that they hid the two Jewish spies when, when Joshua sent them to investigate the, the defenses of, of Jericho. We read about that in Joshua chapter 2, and, and then we read that she and her family were the only ones preserved in the city in Joshua chapter 6 when it was destroyed. Aside from her surprising entrance into Matthew's list here, we would have no idea that she ended up anywhere close to the lineage of Jesus. But here she is, God's kindness to an outcast woman. Ruth is the, the third woman, also mentioned there in verse 5. And we know a lot more about Ruth than we know of the other two because we have that short little Old Testament book by her name, known by her name anyway. We, we should recall that Ruth was a Moabitess. And that alone should prompt some surprise to find her here. Genesis 19, 30 through 37 records the incestuous origins of the Moabites. The Moabites were not welcomed into the assembly of Israel. And yet, here one is. The grandmother of Israel's greatest king. God's kindness to a foreign woman. God clearly delights in surprises. The, these three women, they're, they're all women that, that we would expect to be forgotten in time, they're, they're not the sort of people that would be naturally highlighted in a family tree if that, the purpose of the family tree was to strive for respectability. But God shows his kindness to, to women that this world would, would just as soon as forget by, by granting them prominence in the lineage of our Savior. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. We should worship God because we see his kindness. In verse 6, as we keep working our way down, we, we encounter David, the king of, of Israel, the, the most prominent king in the nation's history. But in that same verse, we have another observation that we're forced to see. We see God's forgiveness. Here is one place that I anticipate that we probably know the story more fully. But Matthew reminds us of, of David's story. He reminds us of David's, uh, of David's great sin by, by mentioning Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, 
the one whose murder David arranged after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. To me, verse 6 is, is one of those cases where the New American Standard translators are a little too helpful. Even though we, we see Bathsheba's name in our, our translation in English, Matthew does not mention her name. Instead, what Matthew wrote in, in, in the original was that Solomon, by her who had been the wife of Uriah, he forces us to fill in Bathsheba's name and emphasizes instead Uriah. He wants us to remember the horror of David's sin. David who was just lifted as the king. He wants us to remember David's sin so that the forgiveness of God is emphasized. Yes, David had to repent of his sin to receive forgiveness. Yes, there were consequences that, that remained in David's life and in his family because of his sin. Yet, yet the forgiveness of God was so great that centuries later, David is referred to as David the king. Verse 6 does not list David the adulterer, David the murderer. It lists David the king. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. We should worship because we see God's forgiveness. It doesn't take us too long until after we come to verse 7 and we hit several less familiar kings. We probably all know the name David, but a lot of these other names are less familiar. We may not know all these kings as well as we know David and Solomon, but, but one thing they show us, even with our limited knowledge of who they are, and the reality is we do have much limited, more limited knowledge the Old Testament gives us much less information on many of these than David and Solomon. The one thing that we know with our limited knowledge of them is that they show us God's mercy. We see God's mercy because we see evil kings. Immediately after Solomon's reign, remember that the, the nation of Israel split. You had the northern kingdom that was then from there on called Israel, and you had the southern kingdom of Judah. One of the things that the books of the kings and chronicles, those Old Testament historical books, they, they make clear is that there were several evil kings who ruled before and after good kings in, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then the northern kingdom only had evil kings. Well, we, what we encounter in our verses in Matthew is a mixture of good and evil. There are some good kings, such as Asa, in, in verse 7 and 8, where Asa is listed. Asa led, led the nation to religious reforms. He was called a good king. But there were also evil kings, like Jotham, who's explained in 2 Kings 8.18, his, his summary statement of his life. He's simply summarized as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Finding evil kings in the lineage of our Lord and Savior reminds us that God is a merciful God. God endured generations of evil within Israel. Rather than just wiping the nation off the face of the earth as they deserve for their evilness, God in his mercy brought good kings and allowed them to rise up after evil kings to restrain the wickedness of the nation time and time again. All of this displays God's mercy. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. 
We should worship God because we see God's mercy. When we hit Jeconiah in verse 11, we, we come to the exile of Israel under Babylon. Judah, the, the southern kingdom, is exiled under Babylon. and In fact, Matthew's groupings of 14 generations in verse 17 places Jeconiah really in both the, the pre- and the post-deportation group. Jeconiah was born as the final one in the, the pre-deportation list of 14. But, but Jeconiah doesn't become a father until after the deportation. And that makes him the beginning of the third group in verse 14. From Jeconiah, we see God's control. God's control. Jeconiah was deported, as I've already mentioned, to Babylon. But he was deported before the final fall of the city, before the final exile of the nation. Jeconiah is also known as Jehoiachin and Coniah in Scripture. He's given multiple names. He's a man who had offended Nebuchadnezzar, the, the mighty king of the Babylonians. As a result... He was taken prisoner by, by Babylon, and his brother Zedekiah was placed on the throne of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, because of Nebuchadnezzar's interference, the Jews never considered Zedekiah as a rightful king. They always look at Jeconiah as the, the real king. Even though he was in Babylon, even though he was in prison there, he was the rightful king in absentia. Significant for our purposes... Jeremiah makes it clear in Jeremiah chapter 22, before any of these historical events happen, Jeremiah makes it clear that they were going to happen because Jeconiah had offended God. God placed a curse on Jeconiah, and God declares that no descendant of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne of David. Here's where things get complicated. I'll try my, my best to sketch it out as simply as I can, so, so stick with me here, because this is where we see God's amazing control. God has declared that no descendant of Jeconiah can sit on the throne of David. And yet Matthew is showing in our verses that Jesus has the right to sit on the throne of David. That's Matthew's goal. Jesus has the right. He has the royal right to take the throne of David. Jesus has the right because he's the legal son of Joseph, who descends from this royal line that flows through Jeconiah, the recognized royal line of the throne. That's how Jews look at Jeconiah, remember. He's the, the rightful royal line. In, in their minds, his descendant has the right to, to ascend the throne. But God's placed a curse on that line. Now, we don't have time this morning to look at it, but in Luke 3, we are given another genealogical record of our Savior. This one in Luke traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam to show that he traces all the way back to the, the beginning of man. He is the son of man, after all. What, what is shocking when you compare the two records is if there is significant divergence in the, the record after David, in, in the section between King David and Jesus. There's great divergence between Luke's line and Matthew's line. Luke traces our Lord's line through David's son Nathan rather than David's son Solomon here as, as we have in verses 6 and 7 of, of, of Matthew. I'm convinced that the difference is because Luke is tracing the physical line of Jesus. 
instead of the legal line. Jesus' legal line runs through Joseph. Jesus was legally Joseph's son. His legal line that gives him right to the throne runs through Joseph. Jesus' physical line, though, his physical line to mankind can only be traced through Mary. His mother that's mentioned there in verse 16. Because Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. We'll, we'll see that more clearly next week. So that, that's a little spoiler for next week in case you didn't know. Jesus is not Joseph's biological son. In, in fact, Matthew, if you notice in our verse, he, he carefully departs from that pattern. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so. He, he carefully departs when he gets to Joseph in order to not imply that, that Joseph was the biological father. This should amaze us. God's control in this world is so great that Jesus could have a legal right to the throne of David and the curse against that line of Jeconiah was still upheld. That's God's control. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. We should worship God because we see his control. Which brings us to the final of the seven observations I'm making this morning. Matthew's entire purpose in this list, all the way down through this list till we get to verse 16, is his entire purpose is to get to the birth of Jesus, the one who is called the Messiah. And here we see God's love. The Messiah. God's love. The term literally Messiah means the anointed one. As I already mentioned, the Old Testament had developed this concept. And and it developed the concept of the Messiah to the point that the Jews understood that God was sending someone who would deliver the nation from foreign oppression, but also some fashion deliver them from their sin. And they were looking for the Messiah. Jesus is the one they were looking for. The, the rest of Matthew's gospel it explains in full why Jesus is the one they were looking for. And he goes on to show that the reason that Jesus is the one they were looking for is so much greater than what they ever imagined. Despite all of God's statements through the Old Testament, despite all of the experience of the exiles for their sin, the Jews failed to comprehend the magnitude of the guilt that their sin bore. They just didn't get it. And sadly, the same is largely true for people today. Most people we encounter, including, I have no doubt, some of you sitting here this morning, most people fail to comprehend the magnitude of guilt that our sin brings upon us. God is a holy God. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin, untainted by it in any way. And that also then means that God must remain separated from everything that is tainted by sin. And that includes you and I. Our sin severs all access between us and God. We cannot reach God through any effort of our own, no matter what we do, no matter how great our effort is. We can give our entire lives to to efforts of service, and it's insufficient. We can give our lives to incredible 
life-giving sacrifice in one-time events, even blowing ourselves up to serve God, and it will not atone for our sins before holy God. Yet the situation is more serious than the fact that we're simply separated from God. Our God is also a just God. That means that our God must punish sin. In other words, he must punish us because we are sinners. Every last one of us. So the Bible makes it clear that the punishment our sin demands before a holy God is an eternity in hell. A place of ongoing, excruciating punishment. It is described in Scripture as the lake of fire. That's what justice demands because our sins have offended a holy God. The Jews didn't comprehend that. Most people today do not comprehend that. But God is also love. Jesus, the Messiah, was born. As a preview next week, Matthew immediately makes it clear that that Jesus is God. God enters creation. The the eternal Son of God is born as the baby Jesus. And and God does this because God's love moved him to, to provide a way that our sins could be forgiven while still maintaining his justice. Our sins could be forgiven in a fashion that let justice be upheld and did not require that we spend an eternity in hell. Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, he was born as we sang in that song this morning, so that he could die in our place. Jesus lived a sinless life. Matthew records that in his gospel. And then he willingly gives his life on a cross, dying for our sins. What is required for his death to cover the guilt of our sins is that we personally accept him as our Savior. We must personally believe that he he died for us. Not just that he died for sins, but that he died for me. Because I deserved hell for my sins. That I cannot do anything to satisfy God through my own efforts. A personal faith. If you're here today and you need to know more about this, please talk to me after the service. If you're listening online or you want to set an appointment with me this week, send me an email. I would love to talk with you further about what it means to have personal faith in Jesus so that you do not face the wrath of God. What I want us to see this morning, all of us, is that Matthew gives us this record so that we can go down to this glorious truth that encapsulates the love of God. Three times we see Matthew refer to the Messiah. In in verse 1, in verse 16, in verse 17, the Messiah encapsulates God's love. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. We should worship God because of his love. As I said at the outset, the amazing abilities of, of many people amaze me. Well, God amazes us. And our amazing God reveals himself so that when we see his amazement, we will worship him. I'm amazed when I see people do things that I cannot do, but much, much more so. I hope that as we've seen these seven things this 
this morning that God has revealed in these first 17 verses of Matthew. As we've seen them, I hope we are all amazed by our God. Yet, yet we should not simply be amazed. We should be moved to act. We should be moved to the supreme act that our God looks for from us, and that is worship. We should worship God because of what we have seen. That's why God reveals these things to us. Why he reveals himself. As we move in the Christmas season, let me ask you, are you looking at the amazing truths uh, that God has revealed of himself through the, the birth of Jesus Christ? Are you looking at what God has done and finding yourself worshiping him? From the lineage of Jesus recorded by Matthew, we see God's providence. We see God's faithfulness. We see God's kindness. We see God's forgiveness. We see God's mercy. We see God's control and we see God's love. Seven things that we see of of God. Each one individually should be more than sufficient to move us to worship as we stand amazed. All of these things, though, are, are, are wrapped up in the birth of Jesus Christ. Our amazing God reveals himself so that we will worship him. Let's pray. Father, may you cause all of us this morning to be amazed by the truths that you've revealed so that we will be men and women who worship you as we ought. Father, if there's someone here who needs to know Jesus as Savior, needs to put their faith and trust in him, I pray that you would draw that person to yourself today. Begin their lifelong amazement that leads to true worship of you by beginning with faith in Jesus Christ. Father, as we go into this Christmas season, a time when we focus more specifically on the the birth of Christ, may we be men and women who are amazed at what you've done for us. May we not be distracted by all the, the noise that our culture has created about this season, but may we be drawn in anew more deeply into amazing worship of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.